Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Peeger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, President and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. And today, for this seventh episode of Your Child's Brain, we will be discussing the most common disorder of neurodevelopment, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Kerry Rush, psychologist in Kennedy Krieger's Center for Neurodevelopmental and Imaging Research, and Dr. Stuart Mostofsky, pediatric neurologist and the director of the Center for Neurodevelopmental and Imaging Research. Welcome, Carrie and Stuart. So Stuart, let's start out with sort of setting the table. What is ADHD? How common is it? And how do you diagnose it? Thank you, Brad. Um, ADHD is, as you mentioned, the most common psychiatric disorder of childhood affecting approximately 8 to 10% of school-age children. It is characterized by age-inappropriate levels of impulsive, hyperactive, and distractible inattentive behavior that has a detrimental impact on functioning across multiple settings, such as school, home, and social environments. If not addressed, it can be associated with significant functional impairment into adolescence and adulthood, including impaired social relations, difficulties at school and work, struggles with substance use, and a range of mental health difficulties. So if there is suspicion about ADHD, it is important that it be diagnosed using a comprehensive evaluation, then addressed um, using a range of options. You asked how it's diagnosed, and there are three key aspects to diagnosing ADHD. First, confirming the presence of ADHD symptoms and that these symptoms are occurring across multiple settings. So this typically involves clinical interviews with the child, with parents and other caregivers, along with having parents, caregivers, as well as teachers complete rating scales regarding ADHD behaviors. Second, confirming that these symptoms are resulting in impairments in functioning across multiple settings. Again, typically home, school, and social settings. And third, determining that these symptoms are not due to other difficulties. For instance, learning disabilities, such as reading disabilities, can contribute to difficulty focusing in school and while doing homework and therefore mimic ADHD symptoms. Another example might be anxiety, which in some children can contribute to excessive hyperactivity and distractibility, again, mimicking ADHD symptoms. One thing that complicates this process is that these diagnoses, such as reading disability and anxiety and other mental health issues, can both mimic the symptoms of ADHD and alternatively can occur in conjunction with ADHD. So a careful in-depth evaluation that includes testing for these, addressing these issues is really crucial. Well, thanks, Rory. That's that's a great comprehensive way to start out the discussion. I mean, you, you describe really a complicated set of, of interacting features, and I imagine it also can change over the course of, of development. So Maybe, Carrie, maybe take on how does ADHD differ between uh, age groups? And then maybe take on also the question of sex effects. What is a sex effect in ADHD and how does that differ from a gender effect? First, we know that ADHD is a chronic lifelong condition that needs ongoing monitoring and support. The way that we treat ADHD may change with development. The way the symptoms present could change with development. Um, so specifically in terms of symptom presentation, 
We tend to see that um, inattentive symptoms of ADHD um, may persist or even worsen in from, from adolescence into adulthood. Um, whereas the hyperactive and impulsive behaviors that we see in ADHD are more often present in childhood and they tend to decrease with age. Um, but there's also a lot of discussion about how in adults and adolescents, there could be um, sort of different symptoms of impulsivity and, and the hyperactive behavior might decrease, but you could see more impulsive decision-making or risk-taking. Um, so we're still kind of working on refining our diagnostic um, understanding for adolescents and adults with ADHD. In terms of the sex differences or gender kind of effects, this, this is a new area of research that we're really trying to understand um, in individuals with ADHD, but we do know that it's more common in males than females uh, with prevalence um, rates uh, previously thinking to be about four to one male to female ratio, but now it's closer to two to one um, in part because we're recognizing that ADHD may look different in females. Males do tend to present more with hyperactive and impulsive symptoms than females do. Um, and often males have more co-occurring disruptive behavior, especially in childhood. So they're often diagnosed at a younger age because those symptoms can be um, more um, impairing, especially in a classroom setting if they're more disruptive to the peers and the ongoing instruction. Um, and females, we do tend to see more of the inattention and um, they're often diagnosed later, maybe into early adolescence as demands for intention increase. Um, and also, we're really still trying to understand these um, differences between males and females with ADHD. How much of this is a function of biological sex at birth, just in terms of their sort of sex chromosomes and, you know, the, um, what's related to their biological sex versus gender as a social construct. And what I mean by that is gender expression, identity, gender roles, and our beliefs about gender. Um, for example, we know that brain development differs among males and females, um, defined by their biological sex. And this might relate to sex differences in ADHD symptom presentation at different times in development, but also our societal expectations regarding how girls and boys typically behave, which refers to gender, may impact parent and teacher perceptions of problematic behavior and ultimately the diagnosis of ADHD. Carrie, that's, that's excellent. It's really important to, to make clear that sex and gender just are not interchangeable terms, and, and you, you really laid it out very nicely there. Thank you. I, I wonder if you could, could go on with talking about treatments for ADHD, and, and when, when do parents and clinicians need to recognize that it's time to, to begin treatment? And I guess along those same lines, are there differences in treatments for boys and girls? Yeah, sure. Great question. So evidence-based treatments for ADHD include behavioral therapy um, and generally stimulant medication is a first line, although um, there are non-stimulant medications that are also approved and recommended for ADHD. And there's research over decades now showing that these combined treatments, meaning behavioral therapy and medication can be um, the most effective. And often when done in combination, you can have a lower dose of medication um, if paired with behavior therapy and get um, greater improvement. Because um, I know many parents will have concerns about using medication. So that's sort of a nice compromise if you do both together. Um, we also know that behavioral treatments are more likely to result in long-term effects because you're teaching skills and strategies, whereas medication only works as long as you're taking it. Um, and once you stop the medication, um, those symptoms are, will resume. 
Um, so behavior treatment, um, what does that mean? What is behavioral therapy for ADHD, especially in childhood? It starts with um, behavioral parent training and teaching parents really how to manage their child's symptoms um, and also informing teachers about how to um, sort of manage symptoms of ADHD in the classroom. Um, because these symptoms are present across setting, we really need to support kids in both settings. Sometimes for um, parent training, this is best done in a group format where parents can hear from other parents of children with ADHD about their struggles at home and what's working and not for their children. So we can learn a lot from other parents in our treatments. And often there's a therapist that will guide that discussion. Um, also, sometimes we'll do kids social skills groups. Um, so that's the therapy that will involve our, the child um, or emotion regulation groups. We know that emotion regulation difficulties are common in 30 to 50% of children with ADHD. So teaching kids how to identify their emotions, how to regulate them, um, rather, you know, how to deal with those angry and sad feelings um, in a way that's more um, adaptive. Um, and also in adolescence and adulthood, we're, we're involving the, the, the child or patient themselves in therapy more so than the parents where we're teaching them skills for um, managing um, the, the, their own symptoms at school and with peers um, in adulthood, that would include strategies like cognitive behavioral therapy too. Um, so uh, in, in children, sometimes we'll see that cognitive behavioral therapy is needed if they often have symptoms of anxiety or depression um, that go along with their ADHD. But again, the first line behavioral therapy is really teaching parents kind of how to be their child's therapist at home because these symptoms have to be managed constantly throughout the day, not just in a one hour therapy session each week. Um, and right now there, we don't treat girls and boys with ADHD differently. Um, we, we treat the symptoms that they're presenting with, but there's not sort of um, designated treatments for girls versus boys. But as we do more research on understanding these sex versus gender kind of effects, it might inform these treatments. Stuart, let's pick up on the, the topic of, of therapies and interventions. What, what do you see as uh, around the corner the, on the, the new vistas for, for treatment for ADHD? Yeah, we, I, there are a number of new treatment approaches and some medication, but some really uh, what seem to be some promising behavioral approaches that really ha have the opportunity to bring long lasting potentially even lifelong um, uh, improvements for individuals with ADHD. One such approach that we've been investigating is the use of mindfulness movement interventions, such as yoga, still meditation, um, and Tai Chi. Um, in fact, last year, we published findings from our laboratory demonstrating that children showed significant improvements in ADHD and other behaviors after an eight-week Tai Chi intervention. Interestingly, we also found that these children showed improvements in motor function, and the degree of motor improvements predicted the degree to which parents reported improvements in ADHD behavior. So the findings suggest that mindful movement practice holds promise for helping children, perhaps not only those with ADHD, but even all children, to build skills needed to focus and better regulate their behavior. Um, this is similar in a way to how practice and exercise can help build motor skills. So you're building these skills of focusing, staying on task, and regulating your behavior. And what's exciting is that in contrast to how medications work, these skill gains in focusing and regulating behavior could be long-lasting and perhaps even lifelong. So as next steps, we're looking to examine whether the positive impacts of mindful movement interventions such as Tai Chi are sustainable 
for children with ADHD. And we also have a project now where we're, where, where we are providing mindful movement intervention with elementary school children in a Baltimore City public school as part of their regular school day curriculum. And we already have evidence of positive impacts with these, with these Baltimore City school children and are really excited about the potential for this approach in helping a wide range of vulnerable children, including those with ADHD. That's, that's very exciting to hear about. So, Carrie, there's a whole bunch of stigma associated with disorders of, of mental health, like ADHD. What are some of the myths that go along with ADHD for individuals that have the diagnosis? For example, you often hear that people with ADHD can't be successful in school, at work, and in life in general. Can, can you debunk some of those myths? Sure, yeah. I will start with that first one. And, and honestly, these are the questions that... Um, when I'm doing my assessments for children with ADHD and their parents trying to um, address some of these myths is really important so they understand their child's um, sort of prognosis. Um, so children with ADHD can absolutely go on to be very successful, um, high-functioning uh, adults pursuing you know, what, what they're passionate about and what they want to do with their lives. It's just about, as I mentioned earlier, really understanding their particular symptoms, um, the impairment on their functioning, how to support them, and how to identify their strengths and the settings and environments that they will succeed in. Um, so you can, they can, you can sort of adapt that for them. Um, another myth I often hear um, is that, uh, you know, ADHD can be diagnosed with a brain scan. Um, so we need to sort of uh, get some pictures of their brain and, and that'll tell us if they have ADHD. Um, I love doing neuroimaging research, but we are not at that point yet. Um, maybe someday that will be part of how we understand a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, but really, um, we see differences in terms of uh, at the group level where we can compare groups of children with and without ADHD um, regarding how their brain scans may look, um, but it's not at the individual level used for diagnosis. Um, also many people think that therapy for ADHD involves sending their child to speak with a therapist each week and parents aren't involved, but, um, a big point I try to, um, sort of communicate to parents is that how important it is for them to be involved in that therapy. And it's really the first way we address ADHD symptoms. Um, and lastly, a big myth is that, you know, concerns about treating a child with a stimulant medication that they might become addicted or that it can be harmful, um, of course, under the guidance of a medical professional, they should be monitoring for side effects of stimulant medication. But we, we also know that treating a child with ADHD with medication or ther therapeutic approaches actually reduces educational underachievement, um, reduces risk for depression and suicide and substance abuse, cigarette smoking even, and accidental injuries such as traumatic brain injury um, and criminal activity as well as teenage pregnancy. So really not treating ADHD with either therapies or medication um, could be more detrimental. So um, those are some of the common myths that, that I've come across. So uh, picking up on this theme of, of uh, transitioning across uh, development, Stuart, maybe pick up on the, the points about how ADHD changes as uh, children transition into adolescence and into young adulthood. As Carrie mentioned, there are changes that we see in ADHD presentation throughout the lifespan. Um, it's more common that, that child, younger children show difficulties with hyperactivity and impulsivity. So difficulty sitting still, fidgetiness, um, difficulty waiting their turn, interrupting. Um, as, as people mature, 
mature, they tend to be able to control these behaviors a bit better. Um, and um, into adolescence, they tend to show less hyperactive impulsive behavior. And the, the difficulties that, that are shown in adolescence and adulthood tend to be ones that are related to the inattentive behavior, difficulty focusing and staying on task, as well as difficulty with being able to organize their, their daily lives. We know as, as people get older, there's increased um, expectation for them to be able to, to self-organize, to, to manage their, their days, their weeks, their months. And people with ADHD tend to show more difficulty with these organizational abilities, sometimes referred to as executive function. So, uh, Carrie, um, let's go back to the, the issues around education. Do, do children who are diagnosed with ADHD, can you describe what kinds of um, educational or accommodative supports they, they may need at school? Sure. Yeah. So actually, I, I could have included this in one of the myths, too, that parents often think that their child needs special education if they are diagnosed with ADHD and they are sort of requesting an individualized education plan or IEP for a child once they have this diagnosis. But many children with ADHD um, uh, do not need that level of educational um, instruction or support. So special education means that they couldn't really access sort of the general education curriculum. Um, but we what we recommend as um, psychologists is supporting children with ADHD in the classroom through educational um, sort of accommodations. This might be things um, that would be included in a 504 plan, um, which is uh, not sort of a legal um, document, like an, an IEP that requires ongoing um, assessments. And it's just a little bit um, sort of less of a legal contract in that sense. Um, but these educational supports and accommodations are sort of a list of strategies that teachers um, can do in the classroom to support a child with ADHD, such as redirecting them to the task um, that's presented to them, um, giving them extended time, uh, working in a quiet setting um, during activities that really require them to focus a little bit more. Whereas uh, special education would really only be um, indicated if there was co-occurring sort of specific learning disorders that needed to be addressed with um, educational interventions at that child's level of sort of learning, or if their symptom severity interferes with their ability to be in the classroom setting, um, like if they could potentially be so um, sort of hyperactive that they can't stay in their seat and they need a one-to-one -one aid to sort of sit with them and keep them on task, that would be more of a special education support. Um, and that's more common in younger children. I would say as children with ADHD advance through school, these uh, the supports that we can offer through a 504 plan um, are usually sufficient um, unless there's, again, these sort of comorbidities with learning um, disorders that need to be addressed. Carrie Stewart, we, we have one minute left. So let's, let's um, in this last minute, each of you, what's the best advice you can give to parents whose child has been diagnosed with ADHD? Carrie, we'll start with you and then Stewart. Well, I think starting with that comprehensive evaluation to get an accurate diagnosis, to inform treatment planning and identify areas of strength, and then really building on those strengths for your child to help them um, build confidence and self-esteem and feel successful in the areas where they, they are intended to do so. Um, so that would probably be the um, most important information I try to share with parents. And Stuart? Um, recognizing that it's a chronic lifelong condition often. Um, so keeping that in mind uh, that it may require ongoing management support um, for a number of years. 
with that, recognizing that uh, comprehensive treatment approaches are, are therefore really crucial. So not just simply focusing on medication, but also considering behavioral approaches such as mindfulness movement intervention that can really provide potentials for sustainable benefits and create a foundation for uh, that, that can be lifelong for, for better regulating behavior, better, better controlling how we focus and stay on task. Well, thank you, Stuart, Carrie. You guys are uh, a wonderful resource of, of expertise. Thank you for taking us through. It's a brief discussion of ADHD. There's much more to talk about, but uh, greatly appreciated. And you've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Creeker Institute with assistance from WYPR and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain.